This is week three of our James series, and uh, so we're looking at chapter three in James. And uh, before we jump into the text, uh, again, I just want to kind of set the context about the letter and about the author of this letter. We're pretty certain that James, uh, who wrote this book, is the same James that was the brother of Jesus, the same James that was the brother of Jude, who wrote the book of Jude, which means that that a huge transformation took place in these two men's lives. Uh, Because initially, uh, James and Jude were like total skeptics about Jesus. They were skeptical about his ministry. In fact, in John 7, it says that they did not believe him. Flat out, they did not believe what Jesus was saying. But over time, things changed. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we're told that the resurrected Christ appeared to James. In Acts 1, we're told that James and Jude were among the 120 that were in the upper room waiting for the day of Pentecost, waiting for the Holy Spirit to come, praying for God's Holy Spirit to come. Uh, In Galatians 1, Acts 15, we're told that James became the leader of the Jerusalem church. He was in that role for 20 years. So James and Jude went from brothers who were skeptical to followers of Jesus who confessed Jesus as Lord and Savior. And for some of you, that has been your journey. For some of you, your journey has been that you started out as a skeptic as it relates to Jesus and the things of Christ and and the resurrection and all of that and trying to connect all those dots. And there was just a lot of skepticism. But over time, the power of the gospel transformed your life. And the reason that you are here today, the reason that you are online today is because you, like James and Jude, moved from skeptic to follower of Jesus. For some of you, you're in the midst of that journey, that you're still trying to connect the dots, that you're still trying to figure things out, that you're still trying to understand, like, what can I really believe and, and, and what really is true? And that's absolutely okay. Like, we want Fairfax to be a place where you can explore your faith, where you can try to figure out where you come in. A a skeptic, you can come in with questions and know that there is space for you to process those questions. But our hope, our prayer, is that you also will move from skeptic to follower of Jesus, to seeing Jesus as your Savior and as your Lord. That's the power of the gospel. It's the power to transform a life. And that is the focus of the book of James. And I just keep saying it over and over again. James focuses on the fact that when we put our faith in Jesus, it should transform every area of our life. And, and when we put our faith in Jesus and there's an area of our life that does not get transformed, that it gets left behind, that it's still operating the way that it, it operated before we became a follower of Jesus, that James says something is wrong there and it needs to be addressed. And basically, the book of James is James addressing all of these things that should be transformed in our lives if we're a follower of Jesus. And when they're not, it doesn't mean we're not a follower of Jesus. It doesn't mean that we're not going to heaven. It doesn't mean that we are not persons of faith. It just means that something's not quite right. Because there's some area of our life that has not been transformed that the gospel that Jesus wants to transform. 
In chapter three, James focuses on the power of the gospel to transform our speech, our words, what James calls, what James calls the tongue. Now, all of us have had embarrassing moments where, uh, like we've said the wrong thing. Uh, maybe we didn't mean uh, to say it, it was an innocent mistake. Uh, we may have meant to say something else, but, but what came out was just the wrong thing. And um, I've done that, and I, I have a, a wonderful staff that every time I do that, they remind me that I have done that. And, and I've got a loving congregation that oftentimes you remind me when I have done that, and that's so awesome because I want to know. But all of us do that. Like, that's just, like, sometimes we just, what comes out, it, something just comes out wrong. It's not what we intended, or it's not what we meant, or it's, it didn't come out the way that we hoped that it would come out. It just kind of came out wrong. And, and so here's what I want you to do. I, I want you to uh, take a, a moment and find someone around you, and I want you to just share a little bit of, like, when that's happened to you. Like, when you... Um, when you've said something that just didn't get interpreted right or it just went wrong or it just wasn't what you meant to say or just like wasn't received in the way that you thought it would be received or you thought it was, whatever it is. And, and as you're kind of thinking about that, I want to give you a moment to kind of think about that. I want to give you an example uh, of, of, of one of mine. How many of you were at the ordination service that we did for Josh Falk? And I just see your hands. So some of you are already smiling because you know what I'm about to say is that, uh, so Josh, I've known Josh, I, I've been here forever, Josh had, grew up in this church, so I've known Josh his whole life, and so I know this guy, and, um, and during the whole service, you know, I'm talking about Josh, talking about Josh, interviewing Josh, using Josh's name, all of that, but for some reason, I don't know why, but when we got to the point where we were gonna anoint Josh with oil, and pray the prayer of ordination. I, I, I looked down, Josh was sitting right next to his wife, Sierra. They were sitting right where you guys are sitting. And I looked down right at them and I said, all right, so if Sierra and Jeff could come on up. <laughs> now, I don't know why I said it. I didn't even know I said it in the moment. I blame it for all the radiation that's been done on my brain, I don't know. But it was just like, and what was so sweet, here's what was so sweet. They did not miss a beat. Like Sierra looked at Josh and she said, come on, Jeff. <laughs> and the pastor's calling us up, so it's time. So, so like, I want you to think about like some experience where you like have said something it's not necessarily, it just didn't come out right. It came out wrong in some way. It was kind of an embarrassing kind of thing. So find someone, not someone you came with, not your spouse, not someone that's just like right there. Find someone around you. Each of you tell a short story. We're not gonna take a long time, so you're gonna have to jump into it. Ready? One, two, three, go.
All right, you can continue. You can continue the stories at the end of church, okay? So uh, based on what I could tell just watching you, there are some really great stories out there. Some uh, that based on your reaction, I'd really like to find out what was going on in that. And then uh, for others, uh, there's others out there that like, you're like, like, that has never happened to me. I never, ever said anything wrong, and I'm not going to talk about it if I did. And so that's okay as well. So, so sometimes when we say the wrong thing, like it's just embarrassing, like, like calling Josh Jeff or the things that you guys were talking about. Sometimes it's just embarrassing. Sometimes, you know, we can laugh about it later, all of that. But other times we may say something that actually wounds someone, wounds someone that we care about, hurts someone that we care about. And as soon as it comes out of our mouth, or as soon as we hit the, the sin button, like we wish we could take it back. Sometimes uh, we say things that hurt others and we don't even realize that we have said it. And maybe that's the worst when we say something and it wounds someone in some way and we're not aware of it until later. And sometimes years and had that experience where someone says, you know, there was something that you said a long time ago, and you're like, I don't even remember saying that. I didn't mean anything. I wasn't trying to hurt you. But you find out later on that something that you said has wounded someone, and it has stuck with them for years. And then there are those times when we're like on the receiving end of that, right? When we are the ones who have been hurt, when someone has wounded us very deeply, has cut us to the core, and, and something that sticks with us for a very long time and, and that when things happen, um, sometimes we're triggered by what was said and, and brought back to that moment and, and it affects the way that we process things and deal with things and relate to people and, and, and sometimes we relate to people in a way that, that is impacted by something that was said to us a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago. Sometimes back when we were little kids, something that was said that impacts the way that we relate to people now. That's the power of words. Words have the power to heal, and words have the power to hurt. They have the power to bring life, and they have the power to absolutely destroy. And that's why James spends the majority of chapter three uh, of the book talking about the power of words. And he begins the chapter this way. He says, not many of you should presume to be teachers uh, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be more strictly. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone is never at fault in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to keep his whole body in check. So James begins by warning those who are teachers, those who are in leadership, those who have some kind of influence in the world, which includes almost all of us to make sure that we watch, we watch, we watch what we say. In today's culture, that could mean stewarding what we post on social media, or it could be stewarding the way we communicate in our relationships, in our friendships, in our marriages, or it could be stewarding the words that we use when we're in a position of authority and someone is under us in an organization and stewarding the way that we use words in that position of authority. Second thing, James talks about the power of the tongue. He says this in verse three, when we, put, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. 
Or take ships as an example. Although they're so large and are driven by strong winds, they're steered by a very small rudder wherever the pilot wants the ship to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. James says that even though it's small and seemingly insignificant, that the tongue has powerful, powerful, outweighed influence. That just like a, a small bit in the mouth of a horse can turn that massive animal in a particular direction, that's the kind of the impact of the tongue. Or just like a small rudder on a huge ship is able to guide the ship, that's the power of the tongue. Or just like a whole forest is set on fire, the tongue has that same kind of power, just like a spark, a little spark sets this whole forest on fire. Like words matter, that's what James is saying, words matter. Thirdly, James points out the potential destructiveness of the tongue. He says in verse six, and these are harsh, these are harsh words, he says, the tongue is also a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. James says that, that just like a spark can destroy an enormous area of land, and we've been reminded of that recently with the awful reality that we've seen in Maui, just this huge, and I, I was seeing on the news today like where they think this this started, and they're not sure, but it started with some small little spark that then set the whole island ablaze. He says, just like that, a tongue which is set on fire by hell can rip apart the whole fabric of a person's life. James means by that phrase, corrupting the whole person, setting the whole course of his life on fire. James is saying that the beauty of humanity is stained, the orderliness of life that is created by God and controlled by God is destroyed when the tongue is set on fire by hell. In other words, when it is not under God's control. That's what James means when he says set on fire by hell. It means that it is not controlled by heavenly forces. It is not controlled by God. It is controlled by something else. James is warning us that words spoken in anger or critical words, or judgmental words, or insensitive words can, in a matter of seconds, destroy a relationship that was built over years. And then the fourth thing that James describes is this kind of uh, Jekyll and Hyde uh, nature of words. Uh, the fact that kind of out of the same person, but both good and bad can come. He says in verse nine, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father. And with that same tongue, we also curse men who have been made in the, in the image of our Father, in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. He says, my brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives or a grapevine bear figs? Neither can, salt, neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. So James asks these 
three rhetorical questions. Can fresh water and salt water both come out of the same spring? Can a fig tree bear olives? And can a grapevine bear figs? And his implied answer to all of those is no. That doesn't make any sense. That is not that is not possible. The point James is making is that redeemed people should have redeemed tongues, that they should have redeemed words, that just like fresh water and salt water can't flow out of the same spring, praising God and cursing others, wishing ill towards others, trashing others who have been created in the image of God shouldn't come out of the mouth of a person who has been redeemed. James says that a redeemed tongue will not only praise the Lord, it will bless others. That a tongue that praises God and does not bless others, a tongue that, you know, sings praises to God and, and, and is joyously responsive to God and comes to church and raises their hands and all that kind of stuff and yet, and yet speaks in ways that are destructive and hurtful to others like should not be. In fact, he says it, it, inca- it causes incredible harm to the cause of Christ. So the question is, Okay, well then what does it mean to bless others with our words? And, and I just want to spend the rest of the time just reminding you of five ways that are talked about in Scripture, not all in James, but in the New Testament. And I'm just going to blast through these, so just kind of hang on. We're just going to move through them really, really fast. The first is this, redeem people, speak words that bear witness to Jesus as Savior and Lord. In Acts 1, 8, says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. One of the ways the writer of Acts is saying it with our words is by telling them about Jesus. Now, here's the interesting thing when we talk about actually using our words to talk to other people about Jesus is that sometimes people will say, maybe you have said it, maybe you have heard someone else say it, but sometimes people will say, you know, I don't really, like talking about Jesus is not my thing. Like I don't really talk about Jesus, I just show people Jesus by the way that I live my life. And the assumption in that statement is that it's an either or proposition. That you can either bear witness to Jesus with your words, that's one possibility, or you can bear witness to Jesus by the way you live your life. But according to scripture, it's not an either or proposition. It's a both and proposition. That we're called to bear witness to Jesus both with our words and with our deeds. And intuitively, we get that. Like intuitively, intuitively, we know that. We know it's not an either or proposition. We know that it is a both and proposition because no one would ever say the opposite, right? No one would ever say, well, I choose to bear witness to Jesus with my words, but not with the way that I live my life. 
Like, I like talking about Jesus. I like telling people about Jesus. I just don't like obeying Jesus. Like, I'm not into the obedience part. Like, I just like talking about Jesus, not actually following Jesus. Like, no one would say that. It's not either or, it's both and. Second thing is this, redeem people confession to each other and they offer words of prayer for each other. James says in chapter five, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. One of the ways that we bless others with our words is to humble ourselves, just to humble ourselves and to admit when we have blown it, just to humble ourselves and admit when we have done something wrong and to ask for forgiveness. And it blesses the person that we've wronged, not just because we ask for forgiveness, it blesses them because it gives them the opportunity to extend grace. And there is a blessing in being able to extend grace to someone else. And when we humble ourselves and admit that we've blown it in some way and we give someone the opportunity to extend grace to us, it is a blessing to them and it is a blessing to us because we then have the opportunity to receive grace. But James says there's another way to bless others with your words. James says it's to pray for them. Like when people are going through a difficult time, when they're facing something that's unexpected, when something comes along that they never saw coming along, they are blessed by someone who is willing to pray for them and tells them that they are willing to pray for them. You know, I have a lot of people that pray for me, and I'm so thankful for that. But when someone like says, Rod, I know I've told you this before. I know I've told you over and over again. I just want you to hear it again. Like I'm praying for you. Like, that's a blessing to me. Like, it's a huge blessing for someone to say, I'm praying for you. And I think that's true, not just for followers of Jesus. I actually think it's a huge blessing, even for people who are not believers. Like, even for people that maybe don't believe in prayer, maybe don't believe in God or not sure about God, uh, have questions about all this Jesus stuff, whatever. There's something about someone in the midst of a painful situation, a hard situation, a hurtful situation. There's something about someone saying, I, I'm gonna be praying for you that just says, I care enough about you to, to, to have what you're going through on my mind. And I know you may not believe in the whole God thing, and I understand that, but I care about what you're going through, and for me, the response is to pray for you. There's something that has a huge impact, even if the person is not a follower of Jesus. I have never talked to anyone who was not a follower of Jesus who I said, I just want you to know I'm praying for you, that was not moved at some level and receptive to the fact that I cared enough about what they were going through to say that I was praying for them. Third thing is this, redeem people, speak words of encouragement to others. Uh, 1 Thessalonians, Paul says uh, in, in chapter four, therefore encourage, encourage each other with these words. Now, I just wanna say something about like what words of encouragement actually are because words of encouragement are more than just about telling someone how awesome they are. 
Like words of encouragement are about so much more than just telling how someone how wonderful they are. Like it's nice to hear that. It's nice to hear that affirmation. All of us love to hear that. We need to hear it. But words of encouragement are, are more than that. Words of encouragement are about encouraging someone to live out God's best for their lives. Like sometimes words of encouragement are challenging. Sometimes words of encouragement can even be a little bit confrontive. Sometimes words of encouragement are, are just the thing that we need uh, to get off the dime, to, to like start moving, to, to start like moving in the direction that we know that we need to be moving in. Sometimes words of encouragement can, can get us to start moving again or to take a step of faith that we've been hesitant to take or to to, to get over some fear that's been controlling our life or to reach our potential. There's nothing encouraging. There's nothing encouraging about allowing someone that we love to wallow in mediocrity. Nothing encouraging about that. Um, I was at a, a couple of different funerals this week and, uh, and for different reasons, uh, both of them kind of uh, wrecked wrecked me one I was just a participant at and, and one that I led and uh, the one that I was a participant at was the funeral of uh, Dennis Stott's father uh, Dennis Stott's is a longtime member of our church he's been on the advisory council for a number of years he's taught in our children's program our kids program um, just an amazing amazing guy and uh, his father Oscar uh, passed away recently and Dennis, uh, Oscar had a huge impact on the whole family and, and, and especially on Dennis's life. And Dennis would refer to Oscar as his hero. And, and, uh, and so I, I went to the funeral and a number of other folks from the church that were connected with the Stotts family went to the funeral. And one of the things that was so, um, that had such an impact on me is that a number of people spoke, but the all five, there's five, uh, five children, so uh, Dennis has four siblings, and all of the siblings spoke, and they were all amazing in terms of what they said. And uh, Dennis was amazing in terms of what he said about his father. But one of the siblings, I was struck by the fact that basically all they did is they got up, they said some things, and then they said, I want, I want to read for you some of the phrases that our dad um, said to us often over the years. And, um, and he just started reading. Like, I, he, he, he went through them so fast, I didn't get a chance to write them down. They were amazing, amazing, amazing statements. And, and, uh, and I'm going to get them from Dennis because I know that he knows how I can get those because they were just like, wow, that is amazing stuff. And these are the words that this dad said to his kids over their whole lifetime. And it was so interesting as, as this brother was like saying these, you know, going through these quotes, every, all the kids were like nodding their head. Like Dennis, like I was behind Dennis. Dennis, like nodding his head. Oh, yeah, I know that one. I've heard that one. We've heard that one over and over again. Like all of these words they had heard over and over again as kids. And I thought, what a gift because all of them were words of encouragement. All of them were 
words that, that challenge them and encourage them to, to live the life that, that God had created them to live. To live up to their potential. To not settle for anything less than that. And I just thought, what a legacy. What a gift. What a gift. The gift of encouragement. Words that encourage. For, for just a moment, just think about the people along the way in your life. Who at just the right time. And I want you to just kind of get... A mental image of that person. The people, or maybe per, uh, people, persons, who at just the right time have used their words to encourage you. Persons who have, who have cheered you on. People who have encouraged you to live out God's best for your life. And I, and I just want to encourage you, challenge you, that if you can, if they're still living, if you can reach out to them, to reach out to them, and to tell them, or to tell them again, even if you've told them before, to tell them again just how much they mean to you and what an impact their words, their words, what an impact their words have had on your life. Fourth thing is this, redeemed people use words that are gracious in responding to other people. Uh, Paul says in Colossians 4, let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt. Now, there's lots of ways that salt is talked about in Scripture. Sometimes it's talked about as a preservative, but here I think it's talked about truly as a seasoning, as something that gives flavor, that makes something taste better. And, and, and Paul is saying, like, let your conversations always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, flavored with salt. May they, may they be uh, tasty conversations so that you may know how to answer everyone. Uh, and I, I've been thinking about this phrase, let your conversations be full of grace and seasoned with salt. And I just can't help but like, I just wanna put other phrases in front of that phrase. Like just to make it more applicable to my life, to our lives. Like just phrases like this. As you talk with people who have very different political views than you have, let your conversation always be full of grace and seasoned, seasoned with salt. As you deal with that family member that drives you crazy, let your conversation be always full of grace and seasoned with salt. As you respond to someone who has hurt you in some way, has wounded you in some way, let your conversation always be full of grace and seasoned with salt. Doesn't mean that you, you can't speak truth. You can speak truth and still speaking in a way that is full of grace and seasoned with salt. In a culture that is often defined by rhetoric that very quickly escalates into something destructive, Paul is saying this 
This is the only way to break the cycle. Oh, I pray in our culture that the church can be a part of breaking the cycle when it comes to the way that we talk to each other and with each other. And not just in the church, like in all of our relationships in the world. In a culture that's often defined by rhetoric that very quickly escalates into something destructive. Paul says, this is the way to break the cycle. When our response to whatever it is that's said is full of grace and seasoned with salt, it diffuses tense situations and de-escalates the tone of conversations. And then lastly is this. Redeemed people use words to comfort others with the hope of Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, Praise be to God, to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, for the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our troubles, so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. One of the ways that we bless others with our words is to comfort them with our words in times of trial, in times of hardship. And Paul says that the comfort that we're able to offer to someone else in those moments is a direct result of the comfort that we have received from God. It's this amazing kind of pay it forward thing that that never that never ends. Like we receive comfort from God which almost always comes from people who God has positioned to bring words of comfort into our lives, and then God uses us to comfort others, and then God uses them to comfort others, and then God uses them to comfort others, and it just goes on and on and on. So James says that these words, these words have this amazing twofold purpose, to praise God and to bless others. The only problem is what James says in verse seven and eight. And this is what he says. It would be nice like at this point just to go, that's the message, just be nicer with your words and just talk nice to each other and let's go and do it. But James says, "Ah, not so fast, not so easy. He says this, All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, creatures of the sea are being tamed and have been tamed by by man, by humanity. But no man, no woman can tame the tongue. Nobody can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. Go in God's peace. (laughs) Ponder that for a little bit. You'll you'll figure it out, you know. I mean, so he spends all of this time talking about the importance and the power of words. And then he says, 
it's impossible. No, no human being has been able, no matter how disciplined, no human being is able to tame the tongue. And when James says that, when he says no person can tame the tongue, the implication is that that includes us, that no matter how hard we try, no matter how much discipline we have, no matter how much self-control we possess and pride ourselves on possessing all of this self-control, that we cannot tame our own tongue. Does that mean we just have to live with a tongue problem that like we just say things that are not the right thing to say and sometimes we're folks we say that's just it that's just that's just the way it is and that's the way I am and that's the way I talk and that's just you have to just take it as it is like and and James says absolutely not James emphatic answer to that is no in fact he says in verse 10 this should not be this can not be we should not be wounding others with our words. So what's the solution? Well, he tells us really in the next chapter, in chapter four. And there's a lot that he says there, but here's, here's, here's the verse that I just want to focus in on and kind of leave us with this. He says in chapter four, verse seven, submit yourselves or surrender yourselves. Submit yourselves, surrender yourselves, therefore, to God. James' assumption is that when we surrender ourselves, when, when we surrender our whole being to God, that we are surrendering our, our tongue, we're surrendering our words to God as well. And that when we surrender our tongue to God, when we surrender our words to God, that the Redeemer begins redeeming our tongue and surrendered tongues become redeemed tongues. Surrendered words become redeemed words. No surrender, James is saying, no redemption of our words. No surrender, James is saying, no hope to actually live out everything that he's talking about there. Now there will still be times when we say the wrong thing. And sometimes it'll be just embarrassing and funny and not really hurt and sometimes we will say the wrong thing and it will wound. And it will hurt. There will be some times when that happens. But when our tongues are surrendered to God, instead of just trying on our own to like grit our teeth and, and censor our own words, the Spirit prompts us to examine our hearts and to, to find out what's going on on the inside that led to the words that we spoke on the outside. And again, James says that our words, they have this amazing twofold purpose to bless others, 
which is what we've been talking about, but also, even though we can't spend much time on it, but also to praise God. And there are lots of ways to praise God in worship. You know, you can lift your hands, you cannot lift your hands, you can fall on your knees, you can stand up, you can sit down, you can move back and forth, you can remain still. Lots of ways to worship, lots of ways to worship. But whatever else you do, this is the point of James as he's talking about our words are used to praise God. Whatever else you do, if you have a tongue that is surrendered to God, if your words are surrendered to God, you will lift your voice in praise to God. Like regardless of how else you worship, you will use your words to lift your praise to God. You will sing. It doesn't matter how on key or off key you are, you will lift your voice in praise. So let us end by just asking you, like, are you, are you blessing others with your words? Are your words praising God? Are you praising God with your words? Or maybe you've listened to this whole message and said, Rod, I really appreciate this. Um, someone said this to me after the message, and I wasn't quite sure what they, I'm never quite sure what they mean when they say this. Uh, they said, oh, that was an awesome message. I can't wait for that to get on our website so I can send it to other people. <laughs> and, and I wasn't sure if like, because sometimes like we say that, like, I don't need to hear this, but I know a lot of other people that need to hear this. But in this case, that's not what they were saying. They were saying, I need to hear it, and there's some other people that need to hear it as well. But, but maybe as you listen to this, and we talk about the power of words, and we talk about the ability of words to wound and hurt and all that, and you just say, that's really not what I struggle surrendering to God. But there are other areas that I struggle surrendering to God. And, and whatever that is, what James would say, is whatever it is, whether it's your words, whether it's something else, whatever it is, surrender that to God and God will transform that area of your life. That any area of your life that you submit to God, that you surrender that area to him. God will transform it. And that's why sometimes the scariest thing in the world is to surrender that area to God. Sometimes that's why we surrender all of this up, this other stuff, and say, God, you know, I'm surrendering all of this other stuff so that I can hang on to like this one thing. And James says, no, whatever it is, surrender it to God and he will transform it. God, we are thankful for a God that, that not only saves us and secures our eternity, but a God that through your spirit invades our lives and allows us the power, gives us the power to, 
to live out that redemption in our lives right now, to live out that salvation in our lives right now, to experience your transforming power in our lives right now. And so, Lord, we pray, we pray that we would be in a posture of surrender. And maybe for some of us, there's a particular area of our life that we have been holding on to that we need to surrender to you. And maybe for some of us, we just need to surrender, surrender it all. We just need to surrender our lives to, to really give you our lives, experience your grace, humble ourselves before you, experience your forgiveness and accept you as our Savior. And today, if someone is online and viewing this or here in this sanctuary that has never given their life, surrendered their life to you, I pray that today would be the day. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.